Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer View. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Welcome to Trial Lawyer View podcast, where we bring some of the most successful and innovative attorneys from across the country. Today, we have a litigator extraordinaire, uh, a man who's licensed in multiple states, has an impressive record of favorable results, both at home and across the country. Uh, He's a fighter who always puts his clients first and doesn't stop until he gets the job done. He's Galen Hare, uh, and I'm gonna read a little bit about his experience. Galen's experience spans across large and boutique firms. He's now a partner at Hare Shinera Trial Attorneys and Insurance Claim HQ, where they fight for the rights of policyholders who've experienced a loss due to fire, flood, hurricane, or from an insurance company not keeping their word. With a comprehensive approach and a low-cost model, Galen achieves impressive results with minimal financial expense. He's been entrusted with several bet the company litigations and his unique work ethic, diverse background and courtroom skills have helped him emerge victorious every time. But he's just not only a fierce litigator, he's also a compassionate human being who cares deeply about his clients and the community. He's involved in several community based organizations, including Access Louisiana and has raised close to $60,000 for Real Men Wear Pink an American Cancer Society fundraising campaign. And when he's not fighting for his clients or raising money for a good cause, he's constantly focused on skills enrichment, attending continuing education just to brush up. And actually he and I met uh, recently at a conference uh, that's not a law-based conference, but a conference that is focused on becoming the best version of you, both in business and personally. Uh, and, And Galen's accomplishments have not gone unnoticed. He's been named a super lawyer, rising star, a top lawyer by New Orleans Magazine and the recipient of Pro Bono Publico Award, among numerous other accolades. He's also the author of Picking Up the Pieces, Surviving Your Property Insurance Claim, an authoritative handbook written for policyholders in easy to understand language. So without further ado, let's dive into the world of first party litigation with Galen Hare and Trial Lawyer Review. Galen, welcome to Trial Lawyer Review. Really delighted to have you join me as a guest today. I appreciate your time today. No, thanks so much for having me, Jason. I'm really excited to get to talk with you. So I usually start out with this question about what was the inspiration behind you becoming a trial lawyer and how did your early experiences shape your approach to litigation? Yeah, so I am what you call a non-traditional path lawyer, I guess. Um, When I got to law school, and I'll back up in a second, but when I got to law school, I realized there were a lot of people kind of they'd done pre-law, they'd kind of groomed themselves for this, they were there. And then there was a mixture of students, some older, some had kind of had other careers and others just had like alternative paths to get there, right? 
I had no idea I was going to end up at law school. No clue. I came down to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina to do physical like labor, just helping out. Um, only thing I could do. I was a music student, got my bachelor of music and opera. Law school was not on the radar, but Katrina was kind of a weird time and place to be. It was almost like a world that didn't yet very painfully existed at the same time. Um, and I was surrounded by a lot of other lawyers and law students that were kind of there helping out. And I think that is really what kind of pushed me to go to law school it was kind of a healthy dose of not knowing what's next and being impressed by other people and thinking that that would be like a good step. But there really was no plan. Like law school was just like, okay, I'm in my early 20s. I need something to do. I'm here. I'm in New Orleans. I had terrible grades. You don't get good grades as a music major. You're going to be shocked to hear. Um, so I wasn't like a 4.0 student. And fortunately, Tulane was desperate enough to take me. And that kind of began the rest of my career. I actually had a similar path to law school because I was a psychology major undergrad and um, didn't want to go further with my psychology degree, although I really enjoyed it. I just didn't see that being uh, my the, the future for me in the workplace. And uh, my mentor at the time said, hey, why don't you think about going to law school? And I said, hmm, that sounds good. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's how I wound up going to law school. I mean, in, in the end, I found I was very passionate about the law and helping people. And that was part of, you know, what the story behind being a psychology major was this desire to understand and help people. Uh, but I found that, you know, it, it was certainly, um, once I got into it, it's like, oh, wow, this is, this is really what, where I was meant to be ultimately. I think it's one of the things that makes us like really unique as a profession, right? Is you don't accidentally go to med school. You had to take all your prereqs. You had to tee that up. It's like a very, very intentional thing. Um, to be a lawyer, you do take the LSAT, but that's really about it, right? So I think as a result, we get like a broader base of like fascinating, diverse, bombastic, reserved. Like you pick the adjective and we just, we have it in our profession. So I, I think it's kind of fun um, because I spent a little bit of time early in my career representing other professions and ethics stuff. And they had like an archetype and I just have not really seen that in the legal profession. Yeah, no, well said. So um, you know, it's interesting having you as a guest because all the guests typically are, are not specialists in first party stuff. And you know, before we came on, on the podcast, I, I was mentioning to you a little bit about the fact that I've been uh, involved in uh, basically struck, I, I try not to call it an accident because the guy struck me, he wasn't paying attention and hit me. I was in a bike lane and I've talked about this, uh, you know, on the podcast numerous times. Um, but the guy who hit me had 10 grand in coverage and my medical bills alone were, you know, 380 plus thousand dollars, not to mention all the other elements of damages that I suffered as a result. And thank God, you know, I had a lot of my own uh, UM insurance stacked that I was ultimately able to you know, go after. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, just the importance of insurance in, in that context, but also how you wound up becoming interested in, in the first party side of things and, and your developing your expertise and specialty in that area. Yeah. So kind of working reverse. So I was there in Katrina 
It was kind of crazy. It was a really wild world. And I was watching lots of people just not get paid with no real apparent reason, right? Um, we later knew that it was the whole flood versus wind thing that was being formed. Um, for any of you that don't know, Allstate and some of the other carriers came up with this idea hey, you know, New Orleans had flooding and it had wind. So what we're going to do is pit the two against each other because if it's flood, we get reimbursed by the federal government. And if it's wind, we don't. And either way, we insulate ourselves from bad faith because we have a reasonable question, right? Which may not be so reasonable. Um, so I later, once I became like a lawyer, would understand that's what was going on. But as a kid, I did not. Um, I just saw people not getting paid. That kind of spurred my interest in first party, I would say, not because I thought there was like money in it, but because I didn't understand it. Ooh, sorry. We all are trained forever to believe that if you purchase something, the other person should honor their word. And we also are very well trained to believe our insurance company. I am not anti-insurance at all. Um, that's not lip service. I believe it's an important product catastrophic insurance, whether it be UM for auto, whether it be for your home or your business, or even health, just health insurance, catastrophic insurance holds up the economy because the average person is not built to withstand a catastrophe. So with that said, I think it's super, super important. Um, so I am a big fan of insurance, but I think people misuse it. I think the carriers misuse it and the policyholders misuse it. And I think people don't know what it's really there for. Like UM is such a great example, right? I can't tell you, and I don't really do UM work. I, I focus on the property side, but I can't tell you how many smart, intelligent, successful people I've met who have liability only insurance, no UM, um, or they have full coverage because they bought a car, but still don't have UM past that. And, you know, that's the problem is we live in a world and I'm not criticizing it where it's acceptable for someone to just have 10, 15, whatever your state minimum is of insurance. And it doesn't matter how much you harm that other person. That is what your insurance will pay. So either, and let's face it, if you only have 10, 15,000 in insurance, you might not have the assets to pay someone for whatever their actual damage is. And the situation you were in, wow. I mean, I don't know, and I'm sure you don't want to share with your intimate financial situation, but 380,000 is a lot of money. And I don't know a lot of people, I've, I've met a couple, but I don't know a lot of people that will just blink and say, yep, 380, here you go. That sucked. Let's move on. No one says that. That's a lot of money. And I find that the American consumer is so interesting because we're like, what is it going to cost me? What can I save? How much do I have to spend? But they're not thinking, well, what happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? Like, Purchasing property insurance is easy, right? I deal with people all the time that are like, I got what my agent told me to because my mortgage company required it. I'm like, but did you get what you needed if your house catches fire? Did you get what you needed if you live in an earthquake zone and an earthquake devastates your business? Did you get what you needed if someone hit you and you were seriously hurt, right? Those are the only questions you have to ask. And we don't really do that in the United States as much as we should. There's a number of reasons for that. Um, you know, we are not encouraged to do so. The insurance game is like a race to the bottom, right? Like 15 minutes or more will save you, right? Like we talk about how much you can save, not how much you can spend. Um, even same thing with health insurance. Like when's the last time 
When's the last time you know someone that really sat down and looked through all their health insurance options and picked the option that was going to provide the most catastrophic coverage? I do, right? <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, you do. Well, you also definitely learned the hard way. You were so lucky you had UM, right? I mean, you know, my my fiance and I got into like a I don't want to call it a fight, but a mini argument because our health insurance plans are changing at work. So I sat down with her and said, "Here are our options." And she wanted the one with the lowest copay for office visits. And I wanted the one with the lowest copay or coinsurance for ER and ICU and hospital and surgery, right? Um, and I was like, I was like, Amanda, we can handle an extra 10 bucks to go to the family practitioner. We cannot handle an extra 100,000 if one of us is in a terrible accident, you know? Um, but that's kind of how I feel about the general approach to insurance is as long as you're careful to make sure you're buying what you need and you're kind of imagining that worst case scenario, you will be okay. But so many people don't do that. Yeah, but you know what's funny about what I learned as part of what happened to me is two, two important things. One was, you know, the way your health insurance policy is written, you don't think about that. And the way mine was written, and it's an ERISA policy and, and basically they're there really was no fighting this. It said that my treatment had to be concluded within one year if it was catastrophic at, when it came to dental injuries. So in my accident, my face hit the A-pillar of the car, broke a bunch of bones in my face, broke my jaw, you know, a lot of injuries. But what took a long time to fix were dental injuries. It knocked out the seven top teeth and had to have braces and a palate expander and all sorts of stuff before I could have reconstructive work and dental implants, which was ultimately, you know, what I needed. So the dental, all of that wound up being direct out of pocket because the plan basically said they wouldn't pay for it if it could not be completed, even though medically speaking, it couldn't be completed within one year. So that's a learn, but you know, there's really no getting around that because you can't rewrite the health insurer's policy to comport with something that might happen, right? So no, no way around that, but it's a hard learn, hard lesson that you learn. And then two was, you know, the, the lien that was asserted against my settlement, which I negotiated being, that's what we do, you know, at Synergy, um, you know, that, that amount was was far less than the full build charges. I think it was maybe one hundred and seventy thousand of the three eighty full build charges. Uh, but the fact is, is that that's that is negotiable, right? And 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 you you have to negotiate and get the best possible reduction so that you net the most out for your settlement. And then lastly, was I found out, you know, I could have had. And I had this already. I had a uh, umbrella policy, but you can add UM to your umbrella policy. So I could have added, which now I have, because I still go out on the bike. And so if I ever get, you know, God forbid, hopefully not, but if I ever got into that situation again, I have additional coverage now on top of the UM. So things like that are things that, you know, unfortunately, people do go to the race to the bottom for the cost of insurance, but that comes at a steep price when you do actually need the insurance. And, and people say, look, it won't happen to me or what's the likelihood? Well, the likelihood is pretty high that you will have a catastrophic incident happen to either your body or your home, right? It's just pretty high. Um, not going to happen 
for most people multiple times, but it will happen once. And, um, you know, it's like, so you, you ride motorcycles, obviously, um, or you said the bike. Oh, bicycles. Oh, that's nowhere near as much fun. Um, my favorite, uh, so our, like, I, I always remember this. I don't know why our like dare cop at, in elementary school, he used to always say the thing about motorcycles is you're either been down or you're going down. And that's kind of the way catastrophic injuries to either yourself or property work is it's either happened or it's going to happen or it's going to happen again. And um, you just cannot, you know, you just cannot bank on that. I know people that hate insurance. They hate it with the fire of a thousand suns because they never get paid what they feel they're owed and they might be right. But nevertheless, you need to get the product because in most states, there are laws to protect you so you can go ahead and get paid down the road. And, you know, that's exactly the that's the only reason someone like me exists. But I can't I can't help you with that problem if you haven't taken that first step of purchasing significant enough insurance. Yeah. Oh, well said. Can you um, share the one or two most challenging cases that um, you've handled and how you were able to secure ultimately a favorable outcome for your clients? Yeah. So the interesting thing about my field is there's a lot of competition on the defense side as well right now. And that leads to some fascinating arguments, results, developments. Um, it used to be very boring five, six years ago when no one was doing this besides me and a couple of others. Um, there was not, it wasn't interesting. There weren't a lot of new arguments being made. Like for instance, we had one the other day where the carrier did not pay, like undisputed, the carrier did not pay, okay? And they made an argument that because our client did not finish repairs within a year, they had forfeit about 30% of any potential recovery um, based on the wording of the policy. And I was like, well, that's cute. Um, I never really thought, but, you know, so we ended up briefing that. I thought it was going to go all the way to the appellate court. It was a super meaty issue. We found some super esoteric cases from around the country that kind of, looked at whether you can enforce a valid provision of a contract if you have created the breach of that contract, you know, so we got to really apply like straight up old school contract law to the insurance policy, which we rarely get to do because there's such a different body of contract law around insurance policies. And um, as a result, we were able to resolve that case. The client is in the process right now of rebuilding their home um, post hurricane, which is amazing. But, you know, these things get super interesting. So, like, they've ranged from, like, we had a poor lady who, like, her house collapsed because the carrier didn't pay. Like, the wind had, like, blown her house slightly over. And we sent, like, a letter from an engineering company saying, hey, we're really worried this house might collapse. And the carrier just ignored it. And in Louisiana, there's, like, two different deadlines that are really important. 30 days and 60 days are both crucial. You can't make this up. On day 61, the house collapses, which... um basically put the carrier in the worst possible legal situation they could ever be in. It took like a $30,000 claim and made it like an eight or $900,000 claim. Um, and we were able to get her essentially full recovery for where she wanted to be. That was like, that was amazingly rewarding because that woman had two mortgages on her home. She'd worked at Walmart since she was 18. I think she was in her forties. Uh, she had two kids, single mom. And it literally anything she had, she had like scrounged and saved and worked overtime and taken second jobs. So for her to lose that house, for that house to collapse was literally the end of her life as she knew it. And we were able to put her in a financial position where she could build a brand new house and save money for retirement. 
is really cool. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, part of the amazing work that trial lawyers get to do and, and we get to be a part of too, and to some extent, and, you know, and helping on the third party liability injury, you know, situations, because th that is not all that unusual. It just, you know, is very common that some of these types of things can, can actually completely destroy your life. I mean, I, I happen to be lucky in that I was not in that situation, but, you know, over the last 20 plus years, I've been working with people who have been in an accident. Most of them are in that situation where they've lost their job. They don't have health insurance coverage. And now they're on Medicaid uh, or they're dependent on Medicare. And, you know, I mean, it's that that's when, when you're able to change their life by making sure that they are adequately compensated, whether it's, you know, the situations that you just described were in the injury world it it's it's a huge difference that you get the opportunity to make 100 percent, and you know that's what i really like about the work is it's not that i think all insurance companies are evil or all policyholders are perfect i understand that there's issues on both sides but really and truly at the end of the day what i think is really cool is like we get to know our people intimately um, we get to know about their life we get to know about their fears what their goals are and to the extent those goals are appropriate with the, in the context of what we're doing, we get to really help make that happen. And that is amazing. So um, your bio mentioned that you're licensed in multiple states and you've got clients all, all over the place. How do you navigate the complexities of working cross jurisdictionally? If that, I, That's kind of the sense of what I got. Um, and, and what are some of the unique challenges you face related to that? Yeah, so technology's really helped with that. Um, we have a number of lawyers. I think we're well over, I think we must be like 28 or 29 lawyers as of today. Might be a little higher than that. So we have individual lawyers that maybe focus on an individual state. In my field, it's really common for like every lawyer at the firm to get licensed in as many states as possible and just say, look, we have these 40 licenses. We want your cases. We don't do that. Very few of my lawyers are multi-jurisdictionally licensed. I am because I think it's important for me as like the leader of the firm to have that. But most of our lawyers are not cross-jurisdictional licensed because I am not going to have someone that spent their whole career learning Texas law go take a Kansas case because I might make a dollar, right? So I help navigate that by hiring really smart, intelligent people to help me navigate the differences from state to state because I don't trust my memory enough to memorize, you know, six states different laws. Um, but the other way we do that is technology really, really, really helps. There's a lot of different procedural requirements if you have a loss to your property. And from one state to the other, they are drastically different. For instance, in Florida, you have a certain amount of time, depending on the policy, to submit a sworn proof of loss. That's a notarized document. In Louisiana, that's unnecessary. You can basically send a demand letter. So depending on the state and where it is, our lawyers know these things, they catalog these things, and we actually make sure our technology prompts us for the appropriate rules, depending on where, where the state is. So really our obligation as lawyers is to make sure we're getting the right information and updating our systems so we don't run the risk of someone forgetting to the extent they are participating in cross-jurisdictional. So when I come in, and maybe today I'm working on a Massachusetts case, and tomorrow I'm working on a New York case, I don't have to worry about, did I accidentally confuse the Massachusetts rule for the New York rule? It's all in there. And that's been really helpful. And technology's really made that possible. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm curious now because, you know, you and I and some others had some conversations at the conference I mentioned where we were talking about the impact of technology in the field of law. And um, I've really, since that meeting, experimented a lot with uh, those technologies, artificial intelligence. Are you using any of that to help in, in this regard? To help, yes. So I'm. So you and I similarly, we're both super interested in AI and tech. Um, I think we also take a. Res one of the things I liked about you when I mentioned Costa Rica is we take a very responsible view. There are law firms that are going to go purchase any AI tool out there and substitute it for people. I think you and I both realize that we have actual legal obligations to our clients. And you know, look, ChatGPT, cool tool. Sometimes it is dead wrong. You know, what do you think the acceptable rate of submitting a dead wrong research memo to a court would be? You know, the answer should be zero unless you were really, really comfortable with getting sanctioned. The answer should be zero. Um, so you can't just rely on those things. But what we have done is supplemented our practices with AI. So, for instance, we have a tool that does draft research memos. We check them. You know, we run them through like a West Side or a Shepherdize, make sure they're accurate and then read them. But getting a research memo in five minutes versus waiting for a clerk to pump it out in two days is certainly worth its weight in gold. Um, we have some doc review AI tools where we can upload the 5,000 pages the carrier gave us and ask questions like how long per policy do they have to submit an estimate? And it'll spreadsheet all the documents. Here's a thousand documents you gave us. Three of them mention a deadline and they're contradictory and here's what they say. Well, all that's doing is getting us to the page faster. We're not substituting the review process, if that makes sense. Um, so we do a lot of that. We do not really use chat GPT because at the end of the day, our, we have like letters and stuff and I just don't know what else I'd use it for in a legal practice. Where I'm interested in AI and what we're currently work, trying to build and test is a way to keep clients updated on a regular basis. And that's where I think like the next level of AI for lawyers is, is right now everyone's trying to figure out what can we have AI do? And you can do a lot, but you still have an ethical obligation to make sure you do it right. But what we can do is find the areas that lawyers are typically subject to bar complaints and find ways to aid them in avoiding those problems. So my, uh, my last guest was uh, fellow MMT or Joey Coleman and we, we had a long discussion about that in, in that episode, just talking about that specifically, the, the power of using AI to make sure clients understand what's going on in their case and what's coming next, you know, because that is such a fertile ground, as you said, for bar complaints, it is an amazing opportunity to use technology. One, just to, to make sure that your clients are more satisfied, which leads to more clients, right? I mean, that's kind of what Joey's point is, is, you know, that the power of that client singing your praises is way more powerful than most any marketing you can do on your own. Uh, but then just making sure that that client understands what's going on within their case so that they're not, you know, wondering what, what's coming next. Yeah, but you know, people are complicated. And I think that's important to remember too. You can get the best AI that pumps out the best updates, but they're still not people. And they'll be able to talk to them, but at some point it will become a they'll become aware they're not talking to a person. And I think ethically, this is the fun fun part. I think ethically as a lawyer, you need to disclose you're not talking to a person. 
So if you're going to have a virtual assistant making outbound phone calls, sending outbound texts, sending emails, sending updates, I think it needs to have something like, even if you give it a fake name, right? Like, even if you want to give it a persona, I don't think you are prohibited from doing that. But you need to say, hi, I'm Julia. I'm Herr Shannara's virtual assistant. You know, um, you can ask me anything you want. But if you ask me things I don't know, I'll have to leave a message for your attorney. Like, I think you need to do that because we don't want to mislead our clients. That would be a sacred violation. I mean, at the very core, right, is don't lie to the court. Don't lie to your clients. Don't steal money. Everything else kind of branches off from there, right? Um, so I think you got to be careful. And that's kind of one of the things we're testing. And one of the things we're seeing is a very mixed bag of responses. I would say the majority of clients are, this is so cool. I love being able to get an update on demand without having to try to reach someone. But certain, certain client archetypes are like, no, I find it offensive. And I'm not doing that. Like, I'm not speaking to a robot. I hired a lawyer. So I think we end up in a world where there's like opt-ins, opt-outs, you know, um, things fall into different workflows depending. Lawyers do a really, really bad job at running a legitimate business and don't take offense. What I mean by that is a business that wouldn't, that if it wasn't a law firm, it would still survive. Um, we don't like the processes and procedures that other corporations like, even though other corporations arguably do much better per per capita than we do. Um, you know, we don't like those things, but it's, it's something we're going to have to cope with. So we're going to try to build this. And I'll tell you, if we do not have a fully automated, artificially, fully automated AI, which are not the same thing, but if we do not have a fully automated AI client update platform by the end of the year, I will consider our team a failure because we're there, we're close, the tech is there. But we do have to fine tune. How do we decide who gets these updates? How do they receive these updates? We have to make sure we actually have taught. Um, we've named her Amelia. We have to make sure we've taught Amelia when she's giving bad information versus good information and how long is acceptable, right? So, you know, you run a law firm. How many times does your paralegal get to give the wrong information before she gets in trouble? Once, twice. We all know they're not perfect, right? So how long does she need to run in a test environment, learning as much as possible before it is ethically acceptable to set her out into the wild? And what is the process for reviewing her? Do we just spot check her one every 100 updates to make sure she's telling the truth? Um, or do we check every single one? Well, if we check every single one, we're moving a lot closer to not needing her, right? So, so we're at a really interesting place. And I, you know, Joey Coleman is so smart. Um, obviously I know him as well. And he's, he's so, it's so interesting that he's kind of bitten onto this because it fits so well with like what he does, which is keep clients happy, keep employees happy. And this is also an existential threat to employees if they look at it the wrong way. You know, my position is I want you, Jason, as a human doing what you're best at. And I don't want you doing things that robots can do because I want you doing more of what you're best at. But I promise you outside my office right now where we have a hundred people sitting, 50 of them do not agree. And they are terrified at some of the technology we're putting into place. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's ethical challenge, there are people challenges, and those are all things that you know, are going to have to be addressed as the technology gets adopted. Certainly the way I've talked to our team about using it is augment what you do 
by using it to make what you do potentially better, but you still have the obligation if you're using it to make sure that you're using it in a way that the information that is being produced is correct and is in the best interest of whoever we serve. So, you know, certainly those issues are are present. The the I think the the question ultimately is is how how do law firms use it in a way that it doesn't cause a problem with as you said the client not understanding where it's coming from and you know it certainly can't be a you know a way to have lawyers avoid talking to their clients because that that's that's not going to be consistent with the the standards of of representation that the bar sets. Yeah. And that's a fair point too, right? The rules of professional conduct talk about a lawyer communicating with the client. It does not take into account a robot communicating with the client. Now you have an excellent argument. My client stayed updated the whole time. They received an update a week. They were able to ask questions. They were able to get intelligent answers. So during the entire year, this case was pending. That was 52 different conversations. I've done better than every other law firm. But is the state bar going to say, but you didn't talk to them? Someone else did? I don't know. It's going to be a really interesting world, but I think we can navigate it. I don't think it's a problem. I want to be very clear. I'm very pro AI adoption, but I think law firms, so law firms are like terrible because they're either like, we're adopting everything. We don't care whether it works or not, but it's the coolest, shiniest tool. Or they're like, we're adopting nothing because our profession is special. And I think it's going to be a real interesting time. I think we're going to see a lot about law firms. I think you're going to see a lot of law firms thrive and a lot of law firms fail because if they, if they can't find that happy medium between adopting this new technology, but also not blindly trusting it, I think there's so many pitfalls on either side. You know, it's interesting you brought up something and I wanted to ask because of Alex, you know, there are a few law firms out there that seem to really understand the power of running a law firm as a business with the metrics and the the focus on on performance in terms of how who they serve, but also the, the health of the business. I'm just curious about that aspect with where you are, because it seems like, at least from the outsider's perspective, that Alex and and that entire team that you're part of really looks at things a bit differently. Yeah. So being part, being Alex's partner is really fascinating for a lot of reasons. Um, some myth, some fact, uh, you know, I got to be careful. I don't want him to murder me if he listens to this, but um, I will tell you where Alex's success came from. It's his biggest secret. Um, anyone can write it down and they can duplicate it and, and outdo him if they can. He is solely dedicated to, hiring the best people for the best job to get the best results. Um, I think one of your earliest podcasts was a Sarah Williams. She wasn't an accident. She didn't accidentally end up at Alexander Shannara. He found her. He chased her. He chased her more than anyone would chase their most desired romantic partner because he was in love with her professionally and he was going to do anything he could to make sure she was willing to be there. Right. Um, and there are a number of other, I mean, Sarah would tell you there's only one Sarah Williams, but there's a number of other excellent trial attorneys under that roof. And they're there for that same reason. Alex has been doggedly committed to finding the best lawyers 
for the best cases to get the best results, which leads to more referrals, which leads to a bigger business, which leads to a higher budget, et cetera, et cetera. But, and this is what people don't know about Alexander Schnarr. He's old school. He's like an old school lawyer, right? People forget this. So all these KPIs, all of this reporting, it is not there, but it's about to be. And so one of the things I've been very proud to be Alex's partner for is we do a lot of that stuff at Hair Shinara. All those KPIs, that reporting, that tech, we do that stuff. Even if it's not Alex's jam per se, Alex has been so supportive of my desires Part of a good partnership is just like a good marriage. You know when it's important to the other person. And even if you're not into it, you let it happen unless you think it's going to be bad, right? So he has been so supportive of me. If I say, I really want to get this computer system, I want to track these things. He might see no value in it, but he'll let me do it anyway so I can see if I can find the value. And as a result, um, Alex, and I'm not taking credit for his success, but Alex has been the beneficiary of Herr Schnara being like a really good testing ground. So if we have this conversation in two years, I think Alexander Shannara has the potential to be bigger than Morgan and Morgan um, because they are about to make some drastic changes that I think it's just going to make them unstoppable. Well, I hope that Alexander is listening. I would love to have him as a guest and, and talk about his success and how he's made um, what is a, a pretty incredible firm. And, and what you talked about about Sarah is interesting. I, I didn't didn't have that background, but it, it's not a surprise ultimately based on the folks that I've met with um, from the from the firm. So uh, no, no surprise at all. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this idea of bet the company litigation because I, I I'm not sure I understand exactly. Um, and, and, you know, what what is key to making sure that that concept is is you know somehow dealt with in litigation yeah so my personal opinion is bet the company litigation should not be handled differently than any other litigation but the reality is it is um and what i mean by that is we've fallen into this terrible terrible trap in in the entire like law field right whether you're on the plaintiff's bar or the defense bar of we're going to push this forward and we're going to settle. So we all know where we're headed, but we might tell our clients whatever we need to say to get hired, right? Um, that is not good when you have a bet the company situation because what's going on is you have the business owners and, and look, it could be bet the person. You could, could be your house, right? And your entire livelihood. But bet the company means your client is absolutely depending on you for survival, for survival of the company, for the ability to keep the employees employed. You know, there are literally mouths that need to be fed. And if you fail, they will not be fed. And if you take that case with an eye towards, I will beat my chest, I will pretend I'm tough, I will make a bunch of money, and then I will advise settling because I'm not willing to take the risk, then you are doing a drastic disservice to your client. And in fact, they trusted you to bet the company and you actually bet against it. So. What I believe every lawyer should be doing, but it's especially important about the company litigation is you start with like an overview of where we're at, what the issues are in the litigation, but also what the issues are in the business. Meaning if I move, like you're playing chess the entire time, but you're not just playing chess against the other side. You're playing chess with your, with your customer, right? Or your client. If I move this pawn, like what 
reaction is going to happen over here? If I take this position or say this thing, how is that going to affect my client's company? Even if I win this case, if I take a position that makes my client look bad, that also might cost them money. And, you know, you have to be so cognizant that every move you make could have millions of dollars of impact, you know? And what I find is once you've eliminated those, what I call moral risks, which is positions you're going to, you could take that would hurt your client. Then you just have to go in as aggressively as possible and push your client's agenda as hard as you can. And, you know, that sounds terrible, but I'm not puffing my chest. Like you just have to take no prisoners until either your client says, okay, now I'm ready to resolve this. And here's the, here's the number or until the other side comes to you and says, what can we do to make this go away or until a jury verdict comes in and you know we should do every case that way but i do feel honored that multiple companies have come to us with like their first party issues and even before i did first party just in their commercial lit issues and said look i am going under like i will go under if i do not get what i need from this and that's a huge thing a lot of pressure um so, you know, I mentioned in your intro, your, your book, Picking Up the Pieces, um, can you share some common mistakes that policyholders make during the claims process that other lawyers should be aware of when they're, you know, trying to evaluate a case that possibly they might refer to you? Yeah. So from, from another lawyer standpoint, what I say is look for this. Look for too inherently a trusting relationship between your potential client and the carrier. Um, if your client loves their insurance company so much that they're really not convinced they need to do something to enforce their rights, you have a client that will bail on you the second the going gets tough, right? And that's dangerous. I'll say the other, the other thing is watch out for experts, right? By the time you get this case, sometimes the carrier has hired stacks of experts, and that's dangerous. Um, you know, so you want to make sure when you're looking at this case that you have a good feel for what's been done, where it's at. I can give you or any of my competitors can give you excellent advice and assess these cases really quickly, but we have to know what's been done. So if you are kind of reviewing one of these cases, I got to tell you, I get referrals all the time that are like, hey, I got this great case. It's like a million dollars in damage and they have blah, blah, blah company. Great. Send it over. And then, you know, two weeks later, I'm calling like, hey, man, I got to term this client. It's, you know, there was fraud in the application process. And they're like, what do you mean? You know, I'm like, well, this is why I asked you to get me whatever you could. I would have weeded this out before we even signed an engagement letter because I know now last thing I want to do is leave egg on your face either because you said, oh, I got these great guys. Um, and that hurts our relationship and that hurts your relationship with your client. So what I would say is look for this. Like sit down and have the hard conversations. Why do you think you weren't paid? Who has been out there? What did they say? I can't tell you how much, this sounds obvious, but I can't tell you how often lawyers just don't do it. Like referral counsel at all. They're just like, I got this loss. I'm sending it over. I got them signed, but they sign them. You can send it over without doing that. As long as you don't sign them, like then I'll sign them and we'll work it together or whatever, but you signed them. So now we got an ethical obligation to this person. And now we're like behind the eight ball. And then the final thing is like, so many lawyers that do not do this area try to handle these cases pre-lit. Do not handle these cases pre-lit. These cases are litigated before a lawsuit is filed. What I mean by that is unlike an average case where you file it and then you guys have a scheduling order and you go hire your experts, 
my expert reports are usually done before I file a lawsuit, um, which means their expert reports are usually done before they file a lawsuit. And the damage isn't getting more apparent over time, right? Like, you know, all they will use against us is that their guys were there faster and saw it all. So do not hold on to this case for a year or less or more prelit thinking maybe you'll get a good settlement offer that'll resolve it. Get it to a specialist, get it to a specialist early because we are not, we're going to start litigating this case before we ever file a lawsuit. And, and that leads to much better results. So as a trial lawyer who focuses on both litigation in front of the client and the long-term personal and business effects of client issues, how do you approach cases where there may be some tension between short-term wins and long-term viability for your clients? Because you, you sort of talked about that, but I just picked up on that kind of nuance of, of maybe that there is some real tension there at times. Yeah, we have that discussion a lot. So we have that discussion about, well maybe I don't want to make this claim because it's, it's not as strong as I want it to be. Well, okay, cool. But if you go to sell this building and it's documented, you allege this damage was there, what's that going to do to reduce the value of that sale? Or they say, maybe I do want to make, maybe I want to make every claim. And we say, well, some of this is specious. So we're probably not going to be able to recover for you on these items, but then there will be a public record stating these things were damaged. So any success, any successive buyer of either the company or the building is going to want to deal with these things. You know, what is a successive carrier going to say? Are they going to want you to go fix these things that might not really be necessary to fix? So especially on large losses, we actually really sit down with them and say, look, here are the things you were saying is wrong. Here are the th here are the types of claims we can make. Here's how we evaluate their relative strength. And we really have to think about how this is going to affect your business or any potential sale in the future, because you need to make that knowing and intelligent. It's all about informed consent, right? Like, again, we always forget lawyers have a duty to get informed consent from their clients as they move forward. My, the very definition of informed consent is sitting down within a client and explaining we can, and I recommend we do this, but here are the effects it will have on the rest of your business or the rest of your operations. So you've, you've, accumulate a lot of accolades. Um, how do you stay motivated? Can you continue striving for excellence? And what role does continuous learning and professional development play in your career? So I think both of those questions really dovetail for me. Um, because if I didn't have professional development and things like that, that I could kind of bite onto, I, I feel like I might lose motivation. I love learning new things. Um, people joke, they say Galen loves playing with new toys. And what I mean by that is like, I love going to a hail class and shooting hail out of a gun onto different roofing materials to see how the relative wind velocities will affect these things. It helps me, it helps my team, it makes us better, and it gets me up every day, right? Um, I'm investing significant money right now into building like a training center so we can continue to build, bring people in and educate our entire staff on things. like. We right now, we've gotten so big that there is no room in our office that all of us can be in, right? So that's unacceptable. Um, so I'm, as a result, like I'm investing the money to make sure I can get everyone in a room and teach them and train them. Um, and then we can lend that out to other companies so they can do the same. So without that training and professional development, and as you kind of hit on, like, look, I was in Costa Rica. We were not talking about law firms. We're not talking about first party property loss. Um, but I also learned, I also identified like serious deficiencies in my own life 
and the way I do not just business, but the way I interact with people that were important to me. And I think your business, your team, whether it's two people or 2000 people, they deserve a leader that's not going to get complacent. And I think complacency, you know, look, I don't buy any of these motivational posters. If you're not thriving, you're dying, like blah, blah, blah. That doesn't bother me, right? But I do think complacency is dangerous because you miss the problems. You don't pay attention to the problems and you miss opportunities. So I'm very anti-complacency. And I think that's one of the things that gets me up every morning is like, I'm not excited to find out what the next fire is going to be, but I'm very excited to learn how I can prevent the next fire before it happens. Well said. I, I agree a hundred percent. And for me to the importance of also seeking education outside of an organization, sometimes you can drink your own Kool-Aid internally and not see things until you step back and look at a variety of issues, you know, that can challenge perhaps the way you're currently doing business, which is something that, you know, I, I think that where we were was that kind of environment, but also, as you said, the idea of how do I, how do I grow my skills as a leader to serve all the people I walk, work and walk alongside of every day, um, here, here at the office. And so there's so many reasons and, but that motivating factor, you know, I, I came back energized from that meeting, from just broadening the way I was thinking and not being so, you know, focused with blinders on about what's going on right at that moment. So it's, it's an incredible opportunity to think in different ways. And that to me is, is very powerful in the way I serve my team and show up every day. I think it made a big difference too. One of the things I enjoyed and, you know, that's when we met and that was your first time going to that one too, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know about you, but I walked in, I was really fine the first dinner because I was just meeting people. But the first day starting to really listen to people talk about what they do, who they are, their companies, I was like, man, I don't know if I should be here. You know, like, um, I don't think I have anything to offer these people, but while I am here, I'm going to listen to what they have to say. And I just left feeling so refreshed. We've made so many changes already. I've already seen positive development from things I took away. And, you know, I think that's a really big, important thing is like, if you're a law firm owner and you're listening to this and you feel stuck in any way, shape or form, like, just go do something like that. Find some mastermind group, find some group development, you know, try to surround yourself by people that are better than you if you can, because they're going to have more, you know, first of all, you probably are better than you think you are. So first of all, you're more likely to get to where you need to be. And second, you want people that you think are more successful because you want to hear what they, what they're doing. Um, and I got to tell you, it was one of the best, it was like two or three days and it was just one of the best workshops I've been to. And I go to these things regularly. Yep. Yeah. I agree hundred percent. Uh, so last question, I'll let you get back to, uh, to all the first party, uh, stuff. So, um, I, I asked this, uh, of all my guests as the last question it's open-ended. You can answer it however you want. Uh, what's your view as a trial lawyer? My view as a trial lawyer is I think I am very lucky because I get to see things through my client's eyes and we are so bad as a society at focusing on ourselves and ourselves only. And I think I'm really lucky 
to have an ethical obligation to find people that are being taken advantage of, see the world through their eyes and fight on their behalf. And I think it is drastically, I know that it has drastically improved my outlook on life, my ability to deal with any adversity that does come up and my tolerance for others, even when I'm having a disagreement. Yeah, it's, it's great to end on that point. I, I always talk about with our team, the opportunity and privilege they get to see these things, to understand what people go through and then to serve and help those people after they've been through something, you know, pretty devastating for the most part, you know, the most of the cases we wind up getting involved with are pretty significant injury cases and that idea of, of being able to understand and see there, there's some real power in that. Um, and understanding that, you know, you, you've got a purpose that is pretty incredible that, uh, most people don't get the chance to, to help people the way you do, the way we do. And that's, that's a, that's a privilege. I couldn't agree more. So, um, what's the best way to get in touch with you if for a listener has a first party case and they, they need an expert like you. I'm always around. Um, so we have like a 24 hour number. It's 844-CLAIM-84. And then our website is insuranceclaimhq.com. And we're on all of the social media under my name and Insurance Claim HQ. Well, we'll link to all of that in the show notes. And um, thank you again for joining me today and uh, appreciate all the listeners listening into this episode. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Lawyer Review. You can find more at triallawyerreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.